Check out my new show, Nicola Talent Presents Getting Away With Murder, live at Liberty Hall on September 20th. Brought to you by MCD. Tickets on sale at ticketmaster.ie. Franklin Floyd was psychotic. He had kidnapped her, raised her as his daughter, married her, and then killed her. This guy's just a fiend, and it gets worse and worse and worse. She was terrified of him. I have no doubt that she had seen him commit multiple acts of violence. How could she live in this horror and yet not just survive, but flourish in high school? I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. It's a mystery that spanned decades full of fake identities, murders and kidnappings. In April 1990, when Tanya Hughes was killed after a hit-and-run incident in Oklahoma City, the FBI soon unveiled that her so-called husband, Clarence Hughes, was actually her father. Coming forward to tell authorities what she knew, the woman's former best friend, Jennifer Fisher, reveals that Tanya's real name is Sharon Marshall, her father, Warren Marshall. She detailed the heartbreaking life of her best friend and how her creepy father, Warren, bought her raunchy lingerie and took her to nightclubs. They soon discovered that Warren wasn't who he said he was and Sharon a victim who was taken from her mother as a young child. Today, I'm talking to Matt Birkbeck, the author of A Beautiful Child and Finding Sharon, as well as a producer and contributor to the Netflix documentary on the story, Girl in the Picture. He tells me about his decades working on the case, how he has managed to help unite a family in grief, and how the story is far from over. I'm Claude Amini, and this is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. So this story begins back really in the 1970s, but the catalyst for what unravels and the mystery that unravels that is kind of very enduring even to this day starts in April of 1990. So let's go back there. There's a woman found on the side of the road in Oklahoma City, uh, just outside the city. Uh, Her name is Tanya Hughes. She's found badly injured. Matt, who exactly was this woman and how did she end up there? So... At that time, she was a dancer at a strip club in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And everybody knew her as the wife of an, uh, to an older man named Clarence Hughes. And she had a two-year-old son named Michael. And she had worked. She had lived a pretty miserable life. She worked six, seven nights a week. That's all she did was work and basically would support the family. And she is taken to Oklahoma City under the guise of a visit to the doctor's office. And she ends up severely injured on the side of a highway. And tell us how, why was she brought to that area, to the doctor's office? What was the, you know, you're saying it was a guise. What was the actual reason she was brought there? So the the ruse was that she was taken there for a medical appointment. Um, but everyone believed that she was taken there because he was going to kill her, uh, that she had was planning to leave him. He had learned that she, she was planning to leave him and was going to take her son, and he apparently got wind of it, and she ultimately ends up on the side of the road, and a week later she dies. So she, after she's found on the side of the road, she's taken into hospital. What was that like? Who was there? Did he go and visit her or anything in the hospital? So, the, yeah, so basically, so she goes to the hospital. She's unconscious. Uh, she has a severe, she had been hit in the back of the head. Um, that's a severe trauma to the back of the head. Uh, she's mostly unconscious. She comes out a little bit. One of her friends from the club comes to visit her, uh, a woman named Karen Parsley. Uh, and they, she tells the nurses there and the staff that she had a very difficult relationship with her husband. And she believes that the husband tried to kill her. And so the husband shows up in the hospital and he bans her and anyone else from coming in to visit her and actually puts a sign on a door that says no visitors. So she she subsequently appears to be coming out of it, though. Um, The doctor that was treating her uh, didn't think her wounds were life-threatening, but 
that wasn't the case. The husband comes and visits her and soon after she, she passes away under somewhat mysterious circumstances. So during her life, like you said, um, Tanya was a dancer at a club called Passions. Um, and while it seems she had no real family around her apart from her husband, she also had a child, right? Yeah, she had a two-year-old son uh, named Michael. And the dancer that she worked with decided she wanted to reach out and let this girl's parents and family know that she had passed away. So they track down her mother and call her. What happens during that phone call? So they actually track down the, the, the guy that owned the club, starts making phone calls, pulls out her employment application. Apparently she was from Alabama and they tracked down, her, her maiden name was, was Tadlock. So he tracks down some Tadlocks in Alabama and he finally finds one where a woman answers the phone and says, you know, did you have a daughter named Tanya Tadlock? And she said, yes. And he says, well, you know, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your daughter just passed away. And the woman says to him, what are you talking about? My daughter died 18 years ago as an infant. Uh, so that basically shocked everyone. And they realized that their friend, who they, got, they were going to bury, uh, her name was not Tanya Tadlock. And they didn't know who she was. And that really as well is kind of the, the part of this story that really cracks open this case and really starts to help unravel the story that ends up being what it is. Let's talk a little bit about Michael, her son now, before we just get into that. Uh, after she died, he was taken into foster care. His father, Clarence, was fighting to take him back. There was a paternity test. Inevitably, it is found that he is not Michael's biological father. So he completely loses his rights to visiting his child when he was in foster care. And four years later, in 1994, he shows up at Michael's school. Can you tell us about what happened then? So, yeah, he, so he had been in prison. He had gone back to prison, actually, uh, and was there for violating parole from a previous arrest. And during that time, he was fighting for custody and took a paternity test, as you said, a DNA test, and it wasn't a match. And so when he gets out of prison, he was banned from seeing Michael. Uh, Michael, at that point, had become this beautiful little boy in 1994 when he had been with his foster parents, Merle and Ernestine. And when he first arrived there after his mother died, uh, he was just a mess. He couldn't even function. And they basically nurtured him and they cared for him. And he came out of this shell that he had been in and was thriving under their care. And when the father, the supposed father, uh, loses custody, he decides he's going to go to his first grade classroom and he's going to kidnap him at gunpoint, which is what he did. And he walked in there, uh, took the principal and Michael right out of his classroom, took the, took the principal to neighboring woods, tied him up, bound him up, and then he left and with Michael. With Michael. And what happened then to Michael? No one ever saw Michael again. Uh, he was captured. He had fled. He And he was captured some weeks later by the FBI uh, in Louisville, Kentucky. And he claimed that he had given Michael away. He had given several different stories, but the one that he had basically shared the most was that he had given the Michael away, Michael away to some people that were going to take care of him and that no one would ever find him. So at this point, when the FBI start looking into Clarence, they make a startling discovery, to say the least, about his identity, don't they? Yeah, they actually had learned, they did learn, because when he had gone to prison, he had tried to cash in a couple of life insurance policies for the dead wife. And they learned that his real name wasn't Clarence Hughes, but it was Franklin Floyd. And that's why he went to prison. He had been, he had violated his parole so, a few years earlier after serving, serving 10 years in prison uh, for bank robbery and some other charges. And the FBI cut gets into it and they realize that his name is Franklin Floyd. And he is a, uh, a fugitive who had been on the run for some time, for some 17, 18, 19 years. And 
They then go back, they then go and they try to track down his whereabouts. And where was this guy? And, um, and they do, you know, and they, they, they see that he had been in Louisville, Kentucky, and in Oklahoma, and in Arizona. And uh, then they, their attention's then focused on the girl that had died, the supposed wife. And they get a phone call from a woman in, in Georgia who says that they saw, she saw a news report and says, that was my friend in high school. And her name was Sharon Marshall. So now Tanya Hughes is Sharon Marshall. And they bring the girl, her name is Jenny Fisher, who I spent some time with. Um, and they bring her to Oklahoma and they debrief her and they find this incredible story about this young woman named Sharon Marshall, who was living with her father, whose name was Warren Marshall. And Warren Marshall was the same fellow as this Clarence Hughes who had married her. So now the story just gets completely convoluted and they're trying to make sense of what's going on. It does. And really Jennifer and the story that she has about uh, Sharon and her life is just, it's unthinkable. Like you you couldn't write it. Um, What did Jennifer tell you about Sharon's life with her father? So Sharon's life with her father, there were two Sharon Marshalls. One, was the brilliant high school student who had routinely gotten A's and B's on her report cards, uh, belonged to several groups, extracurricular activities. She did things like the Air Force ROTC, where she was a lieutenant colonel. And she was a friend. She was a very good friend to Jennifer and it helped Jennifer during a tough period in her life. Uh, And there were other students who said the same thing. But then she had this wacky father who demanded that she be home every day at four o'clock. She had to clean up their house. She had to take care of, you know, clean and cook for him. Uh, He'd accompany her on dates. Uh, He would, you know, Jennifer had Sharon at her home and the father, Warren, showed up. Or actually Franklin Floyd. Um, And... He, the first visit, he asked for a loan from Jenny's father. Uh, so something was up with him. They weren't quite sure. What was really bizarre about this, though, is that since she, Sharon had been doing so well in school, no one, and even though he was a bit weird, no one really cast any doubt as to what, you know, was happening with them. And nor should they have, probably, because of how well she was doing. And she seemed to be perfectly functional. Uh but little did they know, and they, they just had no idea what was going on behind the scenes here uh, between this supposed father and daughter. So say she had issues with truancy or, you know, not showing up or not providing homework. They might have cast doubt on her and, you know, looked into her father more, but that obviously didn't happen. Now, one thing that Jennifer did speak about years later, and, and you mentioned it in the book, is and, and one night, that she slept over with Sharon Marshall, the only night she ever stayed in her house. What happened that night? So there were two stories here, one that she told me years ago and one that she told me again in 2016. And the first one was that she had always wanted to sleep at Sharon's house. Sharon, Jennifer lived in this big, beautiful home in the suburbs. Sharon had this small one-level home, or maybe two or three, two bedrooms maybe. Um... Outside, just outside of Atlanta. And so Jenny said her father was away and she begged her mother to stay over at Sharon's house. And the mother said, fine, we'll do it just one time. So she goes, um, I mean, that night Floyd takes them both to some club where they went dancing. You know, they were only 16 years old and they're hanging out with men twice their age. And Jenny felt very uncomfortable, but Sharon seemed to be pretty familiar with it. And then they go back and then they're fooling around in Jennifer, in uh, Sharon's room. There were no doors in the house either. They just had uh, sheets covering the doorways. And they're just fooling around, giggling and laughing. And then Warren just pops in with a gun in his hand and tells and screams at them and tells them to shut up and go to bed. And, you know, he has the gun pointed at them. 
And Jenny was terrified. What I didn't know was there was another part of that story. And she told me in 2016, and what we did, and she relays it in, in, in the documentary that we did, Girl in the Picture, uh, she tells the story of that after Warren left the room, he comes back and Jenny's sleeping on the floor and Sharon's in her bed and he rapes Sharon. And she said to me, you know, we were in New Orleans at the time and we were doing another TV program. And she said to me, you know, I, I, I never told you this, but I'm telling you now. And, you know, should I share this with, you know, on this program that we were doing? I said, Jenny, you know, first I was horrified by the story. Um, second, I said, look, it's, it's up to you. I mean, it's up to your comfort level if you want to. She didn't. She didn't want to share it that. She did share it with us later. Uh, but it was just, it's an awful story. And it just shocked me when I heard it. And it shocked everyone else um, who has since heard it too. And that's because it did. I was kind of shocked when I heard in the when I you know heard it in the documentary and hadn't heard it in the book. I was like, okay, obviously this is something that she's only getting out now because she shared. She she was full of emotion while she was telling that story. Really, kind of almost like she couldn't believe what she was saying or telling the the documentary producers. But for him to go and do that in the room while her friend was there was that like what gave him the power and the you know the the you know, to think that it was okay to do that. Like, how did he think he was going to get away with doing it? Oh, Franklin Floyd. Franklin Floyd was psychotic. He had raped a four-year-old girl in the early 1960s. Um, and then he robbed the bank. So, you know, we're talking about someone who had grown up in an orphanage. And, you know, and I, and I, I talk about this in the film too. Uh, and I wrote about it in the book, in the first book, A Beautiful Child. Uh, he, you know, he had, he had been sexually assaulted himself, um, which is not an excuse for what he does in his latter life, but just, you know, to, to discuss how the, you know, the, as I say in the, in the film, how the mold was made, um, he had issues and he just, you know, for him to do something like that, he apparently, he apparently had abusing Sharon for years, ever since he had um, taken her when she was a child. And um, it was something that she was used to. It was something she had somehow compartmentalized, which made this, which really got me going on this story. And it really, I mean, how could she live in this horror and yet not just survive, but flourish in high school? To me, it was just a remarkable testament to her. But he, he you know, as you see in the film and as you read in the books, this guy's just a fiend and it gets worse and worse and worse. Absolutely. And like you said, Sharon was thriving in, in school. She had really big ambitions. She wanted to be an aerospace engineer at NASA. And it got to the point that she even got a fully paid scholarship to attend the University of Her Dreams to work in the aerospace school at Georgia Tech where she wanted to go. But she didn't go in the end. What happened there? So Sharon ended up getting pregnant as, pregnant as a senior. She had a boyfriend. She had several boyfriends. And she got pregnant. And that just flipped a switch uh, with her so-called father. And so they left right after graduation. She didn't go to the ceremony. Actually, she, she was in the parking lot, but she didn't go inside. And then she left um, soon after. And they headed, they ended up in Texas and she writes a letter to Jenny Fisher soon after. And she relays to her and says that she had given the baby up for adoption. And she had already told Jenny that she was pregnant. And she had already told Jenny that she's not going to be able to go to school. Her father won't let her. So she's crushed. But then they end up going, she says she went to Texas, gave birth to a baby boy, and that the child was given away supposedly to two doctors were adopted by two doctors. We've never found that child. We've tried looking, but we never did. Uh, and then they ended up, soon after that, they ended up in Arizona. Um, so for, as far as we know, that was the first of several children that she had given birth to. And when she moved away, then obviously this was, you know, they decided to move on from 
the area that they were in because she had gotten pregnant. Um, they move on. Eventually, she ends up working in a strip club um, in Florida where she meets a woman named Cheryl Camasso. Is that right? Yeah. So in Arizona, she ended up getting pregnant again and she had a boyfriend there. And now this, she gives birth to, to Michael and she has, and they, and they end up in Tampa, Florida. And she's, um, this still father and daughter. And she's got this infant son, Michael, and she's dancing at a very famous strip club called Mons Venus. It's very popular with uh, rock bands, athletes, people like that. And she's dancing there and she meets a young woman named Shell Camasso. Shell Camasso is a dancer whose dreams are to be in Playboy. And she's a bit naive. She's originally from New York City. And they become friendly. Uh, only Cheryl uh, rubs Warren the wrong way. Uh, there was a video that Warren had taken of them together, dancing and rubbing oil on each other uh, on a beach. And Cheryl, for some reason, showed it to the other dancers at the club. Now, they already knew that. They already they were certain that Warren was what they said was a freak. He would be there when, when uh, Sharon danced, he would stay in the parking lot. He would drive her there and then wait outside all night. He originally was in the club, but they, the, the bouncers and the girls there thought that was way too creepy. Uh, and they forced him outside. So he would wait in the parking lot all night with Michael in the back seat, this infant boy. And that was how they lived. You know, it was strange. It was weird. Everyone knew it. Everyone saw it. And then when Cheryl shows up with this video of her and Sharon, you know, it was kind of semi-pornographic. Uh, and she was she was proud of it because she thought it was going to get her somehow into Playboy. Uh, and, you know, she tells the girls that it was Warren who, who took the video and they just go off on her and they're ridiculing her and, uh, you know, laughing at her. And Cheryl's incensed. Um, and so she subsequently calls the authorities in Florida and Sharon loses her. She was also getting welfare, a welfare check. And Warren is incensed. And within, it was basically the same time period, Warren and Sharon and Michael leave Florida and Cheryl Camesso disappears. And at this point when... They leave and Cheryl vanishes is when they inevitably change their names from Sharon and Warren to uh, Tanya and Clarence. Yeah, so they leave and they end up going and do stop in Alabama and they steal two names off of tombstones. And one of them was Tanya Tadlock, as we mentioned earlier, and the other one was Clarence Hughes. Now, Sharon is also pregnant again. This is the third time she's pregnant. And they stop in New Orleans and they do find a couple, they stop at a law firm, a lawyer's office, and they find, and they find a couple that wants to adopt the child. Um, the couple's childless, they can't have children themselves. And so they make arrangements to allow this couple to adopt what turned out to be a baby girl, who they named Megan, by the way. Uh, Sharon gives birth. But they had married when they had gotten to New Orleans. So before all this, he marries her. After they change their names on the tombstones, he marries his supposed daughter. Now that's Clarence and Tanya Hughes. Michael's now his son. Instead of him being the grandfather, which he was supposedly before, uh, she gives birth to the girl, to the baby girl, and they take off and they end up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So at this point, when the FBI have kind of are looking into Franklin Floyd, they there comes a point where they think that this father has married his daughter um, and they believe that there has to be more to the story. There has to be more to where they came from. So they're looking at the timeline um, and they actually have somebody send in a photograph of Franklin when he was uh, when they knew him and with Sh Sharon sitting on his lap when she was around four or five. Can you describe that photograph? So that was the photograph that was originally sent to me when I got started on this story, but that was years later. Um, and it's a photo of a little girl. It's supposed to be a father and daughter picture. 
family photo. Uh, only, you know, he, she seems, appears to be either sitting on his lap, uh, but it's anything but a happy family photo. And you could just look at her and you could see something, you know, which is what I said in the movie, something was terribly wrong. You know, she's got the look of a young girl that was being abused. Um, mm-hmm. And the FBI sees the picture. They get the picture. It was an agent who had gotten it from a from a neighbor who lived next to them when they were in Oklahoma back in, ni- in the mid-1970s. And mm-hmm. that's when Joe Fitzpatrick, the FBI agent who was on this case, looks at it and then quickly realizes and says, oh, my God, he kidnapped her, too. And that's when they realize just how diabolical this story is and that it is, it is getting. Mm. And it's at this point they realize as well that this woman's name can't actually be Sharon Marshall, that they realize that there's another name there as well. So let's just go back quickly to the aftermath of Michael's kidnapping. So two months afterwards, he's arrested and he is charged with, among many things, the, the kidnapping of Michael. But he told the court at the time that Michael was still alive and well, and he completely refused to say where he was. Um, there was an episode of Unsolved Mysteries where he said it was nobody's business where Michael had gone. Um, he was ultimately convicted of the kidnapping and sentenced to 52 years behind bars. When he's behind bars uh, in 1995, there's an envelope found uh, with almost 100 photographs. And they're found in the truck that Franklin had used during the kidnap of Michael. And among the pictures, there are a lot of disturbing images. But one in particular is the image of a woman bound and beaten who was eventually identified as Cheryl Comesso. Uh, Her body had been found that year as well, and he was inevitably convicted of her murder also. So he's in jail now for for two um, killings. So he spends the next 21 years behind bars before, in 2015, he finally admits to the FBI that he killed Michael. How did that come about? Okay, so there's a lot to chew on right there, okay? Um, So he is... So he is convicted for Shoah Comesso, which was remarkable in that those photographs were found by a, the guy who bought the truck. It was the principal's truck. And he was in Kansas. And he just found these photos. And the FBI agent saw that the one particular set of photos, which were gruesome, um, were of, ultimately they found that would be Shoah Comesso. She had tan lines. And they knew that they were in Florida, Warren and Sharon. So he contacted the FBI office there. And they ultimately made the connection that it was Cheryl Comesso. Joe Fitzpatrick, then the case is over. Floyd goes to prison for kidnapping then in 1995. Uh, And he now spends the next few years trying to, A, find Michael, but B, also find the identity of Sharon Marshall. No one knows who she really Mm -hmm. is. But he ultimately retires and doesn't know it. And then the case is dead. That's it. There's nothing going on. So in 2002... I got that photo. A um, someone I knew sent it to me. A private investigator knew I was sending me information for stories. You know, if I see if I'd be interested in writing about them, and sent me that photo. And I had the same reaction to that photo that everyone else had. I said, "Oh my god!" But then I saw the caption underneath the photo, and it said that he had kidnapped her, raised her as his daughter, married her, and then killed her. And I did some more digging and found that she had been a standout student. And so I embarked on my journey to try to find her identity. And that led to my book, Beautiful Child, which came out in 2004, which told her story. And then when the book came out, now keep in mind, the case is dead. There's nothing going on. And then when the, so when the book came out, it picked up, it picked up steam on the internet. You know, a lot of it was in chat rooms, with a couple of websites. One of them was a place called Web Sleuths. And people would, were joining in. Who is this girl? And within a year, now I'm starting to get tips on who she is or who she may be. And some of the tips, there were a couple of them that were really good. And I would send them to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And there was a cold case. Um, the head of the cold case unit there was a guy named by the name of Jerry Nance. 
and he would he agreed to do DNA testing. The only problem was we didn't have any any DNA to match it against. Um, Sharon, mm. there was blood. Sharon had some blood that was that they had taken two vials from when she died, but everyone thought it degraded because it had been left in a room and they didn't think the blood was any good. And that's when I got this this email, anonymous email from a woman saying, um, would Sharon's daughter help you with the DNA? And now this is the mother, the woman who adopted Megan in New Orleans, who had heard about the book, read it, contacted me, and then subsequently introduced me to Megan, who was beautiful. I mean, just, she was a teenager. They'd done a great job raising her. And Megan agrees to do a DNA test, and voila, it turns out that Sharon's blood was not degraded, and we had a match. So now we had her blood in CODIS, which is the FBI's database. Um, but then what happened, you know, we were, over the next few years, we continued to get tips and more tips, but nothing really, you know, we stayed on it. We kept the case alive, um, but nothing, there was no match. And it got to the point where we were wondering if we ever would get a match. And that's where the National Center, a cold case, another cold case person, Ashley Rodriguez, was assigned the Sharon Marshall case. And then she read the book. And from the book, she contacted Joe Fitzpatrick. And then from Joe Fitzpatrick and Ashley, they ended up getting in touch with these two FBI agents in Oklahoma City, Nate Furr and Scott Lobb. Uh, they ended up reading the book, which was in the FBI files. And then they embarked on, for four months, they studied Franklin Floyd. They were going to interview him. Now, I had interviewed Floyd in 2003. I spent four hours with him, and it was brutal. It was just an absolutely brutal interview. Mm. Uh, and I got nothing out of him. Other than I had all of his documents, which he let me, which he let me copy. Uh, but they spent the FBI agent spent four months prepping for the interviews with Floyd in 2012, 2014. And Floyd confessed. He confessed to who he had been in solid. He had been in prison since Cheryl commercial murder. He was on death row. Um, and I don't know what he was, he thought he was going to get out of this. Maybe he thought he'd get moved to a different prison. But he confessed to who, to killing Michael. He confessed to shooting him twice in the head before he left Oklahoma. And he told him where he put his body. And he also confessed to Sharon's true identity and what her real name was, which was Suzanne Savakis. And he had kidnapped Suzanne Savakis as a child. So the story he tells is that when he got out of prison in 1973, he had assaulted a woman, fled, he had violated his parole, ends up in North Carolina, and he gets a job as a bus driver, and he meets a woman there who he claims was a prostitute. And the woman had three daughters that state had just taken away because she just couldn't take care of them. And he helps her get those daughters back. And then he marries her. Now, her name is Sandy, Sandy Brandenburg. And she also had an infant son at that time. And then he, the, she gives the son away and then they take off. The, he marries her and then takes off with the three daughters. And they ultimately end up in Texas where Sandy goes to jail for a month. And then he takes Suzanne and flees and leaves the other two daughters. Suzanne was only about five at the time, and the other two were younger. And leaves them at a orphanage or a Baptist home, and he takes off with Suzanne, and no one ever sees them until they, this whole thing was uncovered years later. And are her parents still alive? Did they try and find her during that time that she was missing? So, Sandy had married, she was from Michigan. And when she was in high school, she married, married a guy by the name of Cliff Savakis. And he went to Vietnam. And Sandy was pregnant. Mm -hmm. she, gives birth, she gives birth to Suzanne. But then while, while Cliff is in Vietnam, she meets another man. And she wants a divorce. So she divorces Cliff. And then she ends up in North Carolina. When she loses the three kids the state of North Carolina reaches out to Cliff and says, you want them. 
Now, only Suzanne is his, but the state says the three girls are very close to each other. We really don't want to break them apart. And Cliff is at 23 years old. He's unemployed. He's living at his folks' home. He just got home from Vietnam. He just doesn't feel like he's capable of being a father to one kid, much less three kids. Mm. Um, and so he gets, a, but as he's thinking about it, he gets another letter and says that Sandy had remarried, which is she married Floyd, who's now known, his name he's using now is Brandon Cleo Williams. That's what Sandy knows him as. And so now that he believes that she's with a good family, he gives up his parental rights. And then Sandy, as I said, takes off with Floyd after giving away her infant son in North Carolina, ends up in Texas, goes to prison for a month, was either on a bad check charge or she got picked up for prostitution. That's not clear. Um, and it was during that time where Floyd took off. Now, I did interview one of the... Alex, she had another daughter, Allison, another daughter, a- Amy. Allison was only four at the time. Allison's not in documentary. She is in my second book, Finding Sharon. And she tells a story of being left on the steps of what she thought was a church. And then Suzanne was gone. And she remembers Suzanne. She remembers playing with her, playing, you know, chasing tumbleweeds and things like that. Um, when Sandy got out of jail... She took the two girls, and according to Allison, they went to Oklahoma and stopped at truck stops where Sandy tried to give the children away and couldn't. And then Sandy ends up back in North Carolina. Uh, Mm. We did speak to Sandy's family. We spoke to her brother, and I spoke to her father. And, you know, there were a lot of issues with Sandy at the time, according to them. They don't know what happened to Suzanne. They tried to search for her. Sandy wasn't giving any information out. And, you know, Cliff was either aware or unaware of what was going on. That part's not clear. Uh, but when I did, I did speak to both parents in 2014. After I got word, mm-hmm. Joe Fitzpatrick called me and said, hey, we've, we know her identity. And I was just, I almost fell off, you know, I almost fell off my chair when I found out. Um, I was thrilled that it happened. But then Mm -hmm. when I reached out to them, I spoke to Sandy. I mean, Sandy sounded like she, you know, she lost a cat or something. It wasn't a big deal. Um, I emailed emailed Cliff and I found an email address for him. He emails me back and he says, I have nothing to say and won't have anything to say in the future. Don't ever contact me again. I said, okay. Um, I did get another email from Cliff a couple of years later in which he apologized for that first email and said Mm -hmm. that he had, once he learned what happened to his daughter, you know, he read the book. He had spent months with his pastor. He spent months going for therapy and he was just devastated and he couldn't forgive himself. He was trying his best to come to terms with it. And you could see he was remorseful and was seeking some kind of forgiveness you know, he was trying to forgive himself. She was having a hard time with, mm. but you know, you could see. I, I had empathy for for Cliff. I had very little for the mother for Sandy. Yeah, and she appears in the in the documentary as well, um, and kind of does give tries to give some sort of explanation for why she didn't look for her. But there does seem to be from the other contributors in the documentary, um, especially one of Sharon's ex coworkers uh, who had been kind of through something herself similar. Um, couldn't understand why her mother didn't do everything in her power to try and find her. Why do you think that, you know, she, she kind of did act like it was a missing cat or why did she kind of act like she, or, or didn't even really try to find her? Was she f- afraid of Franklin or? So I was, so I was there the day we interviewed her in Virginia. Um, you know, I'm one of the producers on the program and mm. Sandy was perhaps the biggest issue that we had, you know, we know the truth about her from the book I wrote, from Finding Sharon, from the second book. We know her story. And my mm-hmm. take on it is we need to tell that story. We need to tell, yeah. say what happened. Sky Borgen was the director and she's a wonderful director. She's great. Her argument was 
let her tell her story. So there was a lot of pushing back. There was a lot of push, pushing and, you know, discussion over it. And, you know, through each edit that we did of the film, you know, that was the one area where I continually voiced my objection. You know, we got to tell that real story. Um, that said, you know, I think, and I know it's controversial because a lot of people have asked me about it. Why didn't we tell her real story? Um, I think that with the pushback that she got afterwards from Heather, who danced with Sharon at the club, mm-hmm. as well as with Mary, who was, you know, who adopted Megan. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it, ser- it did serve its purpose. I think for the purpose of a documentary, we, you know, Sky was, was probably right um, in terms of letting her tell her story, just like Cliff told his story. Because we didn't really push Cliff either. Um, as much as we liked him and didn't, you know, and we had empathy for him and saw that he was trying to atone for what happened where Sandy didn't and wasn't. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Cliff still had, you know, there was still some questions for Cliff. You know, what happened after she disappeared? What did you do to try to find her? Did you know what was going on? So Sky felt it would be fair to let them both tell their stories and then let the chips fall where they may. And at the end of the day... That, that was the right decision. So, um, you know, that's basically what, what happened with the parents. But I think there was sufficient pushback after Sandy told her bizarre story of being in a tornado and this and that. That um, I know most people, you know, if you read the chatter on the web and whatnot, you know, most people could mm. see that she wasn't telling the truth. So, you know, it served this point. Absolutely. And like to say that you were one of the producers in the documentary, but you have been a part of this case, not only as a reporter, that picture came across your desk and you looked into it. You ended up writing two really comprehensive books telling Sharon or Suzanne's story. But you were also there um, in an investigative role as well, because like you said to us, you did speak to Franklin and it was an excruciating interview you had with him. What was he like as a, a person to deal with? He was awful. I mean, you saw snippets of it, you know, we played some of the tapes, maybe a minute of my interview with him, not even a minute. And you could hear him. I mean, you could just see how psychotic he was. But, you know, we all, all everyone that's ever interviewed him, I said the same thing. Joe Fitzpatrick said it, and the FBI agents, Scott Love, and they first said it. You got to let him talk. Mm-hmm. And we did. And I did. He just talked for, he just kept going. He talked for 40, 45 minutes. And then, you know, I finally was able to ask some questions. He's all over the map. He's trying to be manipulative. He's going through his documents that he had. He had all of his stuff that was in the, that he had, he had defended himself in court. He acted as his own attorney. So he had access to his own discovery material and he had it with him in prison. But what was really disturbing was he also had the photographs. When he killed Cello Camasso, he tortured her first and he had beaten her and he took photos of it and he pulls them out. And he puts them on the table. We're about two hours into the interview. And he puts them on the table. And he's trying to convince me that he's innocent. And he says he was convicted because of a thumb you could see on Cheryl's inner thigh. And he's showing me this picture trying to convince me it's not his thumb. In the meantime, it's just, it's a disgusting photograph. It really, it's just, you know, and I'm looking at him. And then he just said, and he could see that, you know, I'm having a reaction to this. And he goes, oh, yeah. He goes, yeah, you know, this is a really bad photograph and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you know what? Hold on a minute. I got up, knocked on the door. They let me out. You know, it was just me and him in the room. And I had to go get water. I had to go just, you know, get myself composed a bit. Um, He, um, you know, had absolutely no regard for what he was showing me, for Cheryl and what had happened to Cheryl, uh, which he did. Um, so it was just, you know, at that point in time, we're back three hours into the interview. He's not going to tell me anything. You could tell he's not going to tell me about Sharon. You know, he gave me bits and pieces. What he did tell me was that she was, that she was from Michigan, which was correct. And he also said her mother's name was Linda Williams, which wasn't correct. So he kind of tells you half-truths, you know? Mm. And he did say his mother was a pro- that, that she was a prostitute, um, which she apparently was, you know, one of Sandy's kids who was at 
the interview we did with her had told me afterwards that, you know, she had been a prostitute. So she had confirmed it too. So, you know, by the time it was like, I said, listen, he had all these documents, you know, and he showed them to me and it was, it was, it was, uh, it was a treasure trove of information. It was Sharon's report cards. It was um, documents of his life, you know, letters going back and forth um, at the, the home he was in, the history, his history, history of his family, you know, um, and I just, you know, it was, it was, it was a box full of stuff. And I said, you mind if I make copies of this? And he said, no. So ultimately I got one of the guards. He agreed to take it. I would just hand him out files and he would take them and make copies of everything for me. And mm-hmm. so I did leave there with all these files, which really, I have to say, it really added to the book and it really gave the book some substance having all this, you know, real firsthand source material and information. So, you know, while I got a chance to sit with Floyd and as I say in the film, I just, he's completely psychotic. Um, I did get those documents. I did go visit him again after the book came out, after A Beautiful Child was published in 2004 and he was not happy with me. You know, he was now on death row. He was at a different prison. Um, He's sitting, you know, now this time, you know, the first time the guards took his handcuffs off and left the room because he said, I want to show him my files. Um, this time there was glass between us and he just went off for two hours. I, didn't, I don't even think I said a word. You know, I didn't even want to interrupt him. I just let him go. He just kept going for mm. two hours, just, you know, spewing at me. You know, I, and I relay some of that in the book because when the FBI agents got, years later went to go interview him in prison, um, you know, he was really angry with Joe Fitzpatrick. Um, and he was really angry with me. And, you know, I saw it then. So um, it was, I've told people this, you know, I've done this for a long time as a reporter. And it was the most disturbing interview. The first one mm. I did with him. It was the most disturbing interview I've ever done in my career. And he is, uh, technically he is a serial killer because at this point he has killed Cheryl. Uh, he hasn't admitted to it yet, but he has murdered um, Michael. Um, he is suspected to have been involved in the murder of his wife. Um, I would have thought that he would have been a killer of convenience some, and a sexual predator more so than a sexually motivated serial killer. But it does seem to me like perhaps the Cheryl Comesso killing could have been um, something for his own gratification. Do you think that he could have went on to kill more people had he not been stopped? So the Cheryl Comesso murder was, was, was out of anger, um, complete anger. And you could see it in the photos that he had taken. Mm-hmm. We had, I had thought way back when, and I've discussed this with the FBI and others, that he was a serial killer, meaning not just the, not just the people we know he killed, but others. You know, he went to particular cities and he went to the same cities time after time after time. And there are other missing women out there where, and even recently we've gotten some tips potentially connecting him to the disappearances of women in Georgia, to the disappearances of women in Kentucky, um, who could have met the same fate as, say, Cheryl Comesso did, where, you know, the only reason why Cheryl Comesso's case was ultimately solved, you know, aside from several miracles, was that Mm. where he had buried her, um, the surface ground had been washed away. There had been a flood off the side of the highway and it exposed her skeleton. So I'm certain that, you know, he had killed other women and he had buried them and it would be almost impossible to find them. So, but I have, I'm pretty certain that he, he is a so-called, you know, aside from these murders that we know of, that he is a serial killer, whether or not we can actually Mm -hmm. ever get to the, get to the bottom of it that I don't know. Mm. And kind of, I suppose, one question I suppose everybody has about this this story. Um, now, Floyd is not the first person to control a victim the way he did control Sharon all those years. You know, if you look at kidnap victims like Elizabeth Smart and Colleen Stan and uh, even Stephen Stainer, they all went out in public with their captors and didn't ask for help. One thing I have to ask is that how do people like him maintain power over the victims when they could, or people perceived that they could easily tell somebody what was going on? I think it was just purely violence. I think that she knew, she was terrified of him. Um, And she, 
as far as as far as I know, because people always say, why didn't she ask for help? Um, and they've asked me that question over the years, for 20 years now. Why didn't she ask for help? And she couldn't. She was terrified of him. She had seen, I have no doubt that she had seen him commit multiple acts of violence. I and we're we are even we're even of the belief now, I am and others, that she may have been involved in Michelle Comesso's murder. And she may have even seen it. Um, because he needed help with that, because they put her car, they put Shell's car at the airport. Um mm-hmm. and And she only once in her life that I know of admitted that he wasn't her father. And that was with Heather at the club during all the stuff with with, um, Cheryl Comesso. And the dancers there thought that Warren was abusing Sharon. Um, They had this incestuous relationship and she denied it. She was crying and she admitted to Heather said, he's not my father. He's my stepfather. And he's been abusing me all these years. So he had control of her since she was a child. Mm-hmm. And he maintained that control. And, you know, it wasn't just the abuse. It was the violence, too. Um, so under those conditions, that's why it was so remarkable that when she died, when she was found on the side of that road, she was trying to leave him. But she was trying to leave him to save her son, Michael, because she mm-hmm. realized she realized that her use to him was just about over. He had her working every night and then he had his, his eyes set on Michael now and Michael was going to replace her. And she ultimately realized that. And it was just this extreme act of courage on her part to, she had actually made plans to leave him. She had another boyfriend. I wrote it. I wrote about it in the books. Um, she had another boyfriend. She made plans and he found out about it. So, um, that was another reason why I just thought she was a remarkable young woman. Um, but it was just that the, the acts of violence and the, and the manipulation since she had been a toddler, all the reasons why she just never said anything. Absolutely. So in his lifetime, he had, you know, those two definite murders, one potential murder. The victims obviously go back as far as, as, as Suzanne's mother. Uh, so he, at this point as well, we know that he had the, the two other, her two other sisters had been dropped off to that, uh, what they thought was a church, ended up getting back into the care of their mother. But whatever happened to the youngest son, the infant? So this was a story that um, I broached with the FBI agents in 2016. It was baby Philip. Everyone called him. No one, we, did he exist? Did he not exist? The FBI agents didn't believe mm-hmm. he existed. Um, I got an email in 2019. So we did this um, headstone ceremony where we replaced her headstone in 2017, which I did include in the book. I did the second book, Finding Sharon, basically just to tie up all the loose ends. Because there were so many, you know, I wrote a book with no ending, the first one, which was kind of frustrating for some people. Um, So I figured, let me just do the second one and I'll answer all the different, and it will answer all the questions. So we did do, we did change her headstone with her real name, Suzanne Savakis, in 2017 and had everybody there, her family and friends they, and law enforcement officials. And so then you think that, the, that it's over, right? We had this great ending to a horrible story. And then in 2019, I got a message on Facebook. And this guy tells me that his father died a week earlier and his mother gave him some papers. And it said, he knew he had been adopted, but it says he had been, his his birth mother was a Sandy Brandenburg and that his sister is the girl that I wrote about in The Beautiful Child. And he read the book and he's got a million questions. So I'm thinking he thinks he's baby Philip. His name is Steve now, Steve Patterson. I said, Steve, I'll tell you what, let me get it. Let me facilitate a DNA test. Let me call the FBI and see if Mm -hmm. they'll do it for you. I called Scott Lobb in Oklahoma and Scott said, sure. You know, Scott didn't believe that there was a baby Philip, but to his credit, he went ahead and did it anyway. And it took a long while for the result to come back. But then Steve got in touch with me, like almost a year later, and said it was a match. And wow, he was, his name is Steve Patterson. He's from North Carolina. He never moved. You know, the mother said that San, he, she met Sandy in the hospital. She had miscarriage. Sandy was giving birth. The mother could, the adoptive mother could not have a family. And 
So Sandy just shows up one day at her door and says, here, you want a baby? And, but she said to me, she could see in the background a man who she believed to be Floyd, just watching off on the side. Um, and that's when Sandy left North Carolina with her three daughters. And she raised Steve, and Steve is a, is a wonderful guy. And, and the best part of that story is that he connected with um, Sandy's brother and with his Sandy's father, who would be his uncle and his grandfather. He went to go see yeah. them in Florida. Um, and he has been in touch with Megan, who is Sharon's daughter and would be his niece. So, yes. right. <laughs> so a little confusing. So it was, you know, it was another one of those kind of like wow moments where we like connected, you know, we found this other family member and connected them, you know, to other family members. He doesn't want anything to do with Sandy. You know, that door okay. is clo- that door is closed. Um, but he has, you know, he does have relationships with other members of the family. And even better, Megan and Cliff, so Suzanne's biological father from way back when, he and Megan have hit it off. And they have a great relationship. He did come after he sent me that second letter, email, you know, apologizing and, you know, seeking forgiveness and all that from himself. You know, I invited him to the headstone ceremony and he came in June 2017. And he and Megan met for the first time ever. And I'm happy to say that in last November, I went down to New Orleans for Megan's wedding and Cliff was there. That's amazing. And they have this great relationship. Yep. They dance together. They have a really good relationship and they talk. And it's just that part of the story was just awesome. It is. It's a very kind of bittersweet ending, I suppose, that, you know, they wouldn't be in this situation had things unhappened. But at the end of the day, they've kind of all come back to each other as well. And just on that, like when you like just to like show how enduring this kind of story is like to this day, we still, there's still answers. There's still questions that are need to be answered. Um, but when you wrote your first book in 2004, you ended up having to do, like you said, there was no ending to it. It was kind of left open-ended. Didn't even know who um, Sharon's real identity was. There was no kind of, there was no real conclusion about what happened to Michael or anything like that. So you did go ahead and write the second book, um, Finding Sharon, which is kind of more about Suzanne and her story and, and, and how she ended up with, with Franklin Floyd. But tell me, is there, obviously Franklin is on, still on death row, is that right? He's on death row, but he's not going to be executed. He's just going to live out his days. Yeah, there doesn't seem to have been many executions uh, in the last while there. So I wasn't too hopeful that there, there might be anything there. But is there hope that he will reveal where Michael's body is? Because that is the one last, well, for now, it's the one last thread that needs needs to be sewed up. So there, so there actually there are two. One is, or yeah, one is what happened to the first child that was given up um, in Texas when she got out of high school. And there is activity now within law enforcement. I can't say that. I can't say spe- I can't tell you specifically. I mean, I I know, yeah. but I can't I can't share it. Um, but there is activity now to try to find that missing child who would be in his or her thirties right now. Um, and then as far as Michael's concerned, the FBI believes the case is closed. They believe that Floyd told him the truth and that he had killed him in a field near the Oklahoma, Texas border and left his body there that he realized that Michael was going to be difficult. Michael did not want to go with him. He wanted to go back to the beans and they believed him. The FBI agents believed him that they believed that when they interviewed him, they got him in such a state. He even drew a map for them and said, this is where, you know, he was. This is the road. This is the exit. There was also a witness who had seen him and Michael that day at a truck stop that was nearby. Mm-hmm. So they so they believe they believe that um, he told the truth. And so, you know, there are others that don't believe it. I could, you know, Joe Fitzpatrick, the original FBI agent, it doesn't necessarily believe that Floyd told the truth, but they do. The explanation for not being able to find any of Michael's remains, which we did not say, excuse me, in the film, 
um, was because there were wild animals in that area, you know, feral pigs. Yeah. So they would, the only remains that would be there would be maybe some bones or, you know, some clothing, belt buckle, something like that. Um, but they didn't find anything. And you also have to take it um, for granted that they did search in the right area. You know, they could have, you know, maybe they didn't find anything because they were 200 feet too far over. You know, Floyd, they did not take Floyd back with them to Oklahoma to point out exactly where it was. You know, they just basically drew a map, had him point to it. They went, they searched an area, didn't find anything, and that was that. So um, I don't think there's going to be, any, you know, that part of the story, as far as law enforcement's concerned, um, is done. You know, they believe that he told the truth and that he had killed Michael there. So there, there could be a third book, yes, uh, depending on the outcome of, of, well, who knows what Franklin has gotten up to um, in the past or what he could be connected to. But there is so much to this story and we simply can't go into it all in this episode. So I really do recommend that listeners get your hands on Matt's two books. The first one is A Beautiful Child and the second one is Finding Sharon. Matt Burbeck, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Claude Amini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.